Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We begin with the rousing address by Ukraine's President Zelensky last night to a joint session of Congress in which the wartime leader tied the fate of his embattled country to the professed American values of freedom, liberty, justice and democracy. Joining us to discuss Zelensky's speech and the unhinged critique on Fox News from Putin's propagandist Tucker Carlson is Emily Channel Justice, the director of the Timurti Contemporary Ukraine Program at the Ukrainian Research Institute at Harvard University, a socio-cultural anthropologist who has been doing research in Ukraine since 2012. Her current research focuses on political activism and social movements among students and feminists during the 2013 and 2014 Euromaidan mobilizations. Her new book is Without the State, Self-Organizations and Political Activism in Ukraine, and we will assess the likely impact of Zelensky's visit on the passage of the $45 billion in aid for Ukraine before the new Republican House takes over, with promises to question and possibly cut the amount and type of aid Ukraine is getting from the U.S. Then we'll get an update on the public release of the January 6th Committee's much-anticipated report and speak with Jennifer Taub, a legal scholar and professor of law at Western New England Law School, who previously taught at Harvard Law School. Her writing focuses on corporate governance, banking and financial market regulation, white-collar crime and corruption. She has testified as a banking law expert before Congress, and her latest book is Big Dirty Money, Making White-Collar Criminals Pay, now out in paperback. And she's the host of the new podcast, Booked Up with Jen Taub. Then finally, we'll look into the 50-year-long radicalization of the Republican Party and the need to defeat it overwhelmingly, which the top-down leadership of the Democratic Party appears neither to comprehend what they're up against or have a plan to create a massive grassroots movement to defeat GOP extremism. Joining us is Lisa Graves, the executive director of the new corporate watchdog group True North Research. She has served as a senior advisor in all three branches of the federal government, a Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Justice Department, a Chief Counsel for Nominations on the Senate Judiciary Committee, and as a Deputy Chief of the Article Three Judges Division for the U.S. Courts. And before we begin, as the end of the year approaches, when folks make their charitable donations, I hope our listeners and donors think of background briefing and reward our determination to keep this program free of commercial advertising, corporate underwriting, and not to mention paywalls. So if you're so inclined, please go to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or to our tax-exempt non-profit foundation, publictruthmedia.org, where your donations, large and small, will enable us to keep offering background briefing free to the public. And I wish you and yours the happiest of holidays. And joining us now is Emily Channel Justice, who's the director of the Timurti Contemporary Ukraine Program at the Ukraine Research Institute at Harvard University. A sociocultural anthropologist who has been doing research in Ukraine since 2012. Her current research focuses on political activism and social movements among students and feminists during the 2013-2014 Euromaidan mobilizations. Her latest book is Without the State, Self-Organization and Political Activism in Ukraine. Welcome to Background Briefing, Emily Channel Justice. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, Emily. And what did you make of the uh, speech last night by the Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky to a joint session of the United States Congress? It was uh, quite emotional, quite powerful. And um, there was, I think, 18 standing ovations at least. I, I thought it was fantastic. I really, you know, I think Zelensky, um, he, he planned everything appropriately. He hit all the right notes. Um, he expressed a lot of gratitude for how much the U.S. has helped Ukraine so far. Um, and, uh, you know, this was really meaningful, I think, given how long this support has been going on. Um, but he also asked for more. And he also, you know, he was just just yesterday, he was on the front lines in Bakhmut in eastern Ukraine. Um, and bringing a message from the soldiers that he met with there, um, you know, it, it was really, uh, I think, you know, I think it was exactly the message that needed to be sent to the U.S. Congress. And in terms of opposition, I mean, in this new Republican Congress in about, what, two weeks away, there's obviously Tucker Carlson had a complete meltdown 
on Fox News last night. He, he had Tulsi Gabbard on, and he has been uh, Russia's strongest voice here in the United States. He completely parrots the Kremlin's talking points, and he did so again and criticized Zelensky because of his attire, because he wasn't wearing a suit and tie. What's your sense of, uh, I mean, obviously it was calculated on the part of both Biden and Nancy Pelosi to have this speech so that it could win over the Congress and put the pro-Putin caucus, if you will, in a difficult position. Do you think that was achieved? Well, I think, you know, I think the response that I've seen, um, it's hard for me to say if Zelensky, no matter his gravitas, no matter what he says, will convince those people who have, you know, been, been basically bought off by by Russia at this point. Um, I think if if anybody has been sitting kind of not maybe on the fence, but, you know, any any congressional representative who at this point is thinking, I don't know, maybe it's starting to be too much. Those are the people I think he's won over. You know, I, I think I read something to the effect of 83, only 83 Republicans from the House of Representatives attended. Um, there are certainly people who simply will not hear him out. Uh, and and that has less to do with what he says than than a position that they've decided to take. Um, but in the sense of of kind of keeping the attention on Ukraine reassuring those senators and, and um, House representatives who have put so much into Ukraine, reassuring them that they've done the right thing and that Ukraine is doing the right thing with all of this aid, that was absolutely achieved. Well, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's one of the most strident voices against uh, Ukraine and who's completely follows Putin's talking points, she didn't attend and neither did Senator Josh Hawley. And you mentioned there, there were others but in general, it seemed to be sort of a love fest. He's obviously somebody that knows how to reach the American audience and touch some important buttons, even referring to the Battle of Saratoga in the American Revolutionary War. Yeah, he really, that's, I think, something that, that Zelensky has shown us um, over and over again, is that he and his his team of, of speechwriters really understand the audiences that they're talking to um, and, you know, referencing something that's deeply rooted in American history is really effective and, and really pushing the values of democracy and freedom against tyranny. I mean, every American should be supportive of those goals. That's something that this country has has fought against in the world for decades. And so, I think he's really appealing to this idea that Ukrainians are the embodiment um, of the 21st century's fight against tyranny and autocracy and the fight for democracy and freedom. And so I think, you know, I think that this this speech was it was certainly obviously tailored for the, the Congress, but I think it's meant to resonate with average Americans as well, who at this point, you know, might be tired of hearing about Ukraine, might be starting to feel unsure about the U.S. continuing to support Ukraine. To have Zelensky come directly from the front lines in that battle attire, you know, showing that he is he is here as a representative of the people of Ukraine, that's the kind of leader we should all hope to have. If the situation were, were you know, if we were in the situation that Ukraine is in right now, um, and that that message I hope will resonate, you know, outside of the walls of Congress. Well, I thought one of the more interesting uh, remarks that he made um, was when he referred to the Iranians, their drone program, which is now apparently Russians are going to be manufacturing Iranian drones in Russia. And he was talking about the ties between Russia and, and Iran, and in particular Iran's export of missiles and drones. He said that they could also turn these weapons on your allies. And that was a clear reference to Israel. Did you think that resonated with the Congress? You know, I hope so. Um, I, I think this was a really smart point to make because one of the, obviously, this this relationship between Russia and Iran and Iran's contributions in terms of boosting Russia's military and weaponry supply. Um, you know, there are many people, I think, in the U.S. who have, who have fought for sanctions against Iran for a lot longer than they've even thought about sanctions against Russia. And so articulating, you know, the context of, of you know, we, we've been fighting against Iran and, and trying to 
counteract these types of, of military productions, um, in addition to, you know, linking that to U.S. support for Israel, um, I, I think that was a smart move. And I hope that put it into a context for some of the some of the Congress people um, that who maybe have not put that together yet. So obviously the purpose of the speech to the joint session of Congress by Zelensky last night is to get the $45 billion package of spending for Ukraine, which is it's not all for military. I mean, the country is being devastated. It's, its entire electric grid is being destroyed. So obviously economic assistance is also as vital as military assistance is. But the $45 billion is in this big NDAA package, $858 billion for the Pentagon. Uh, Representative Chip Roy of Texas is trying to stop the passage. I don't know whether he's able to do that. He thinks that if they stop the passage, then the Republicans take over the House, they'll have more leverage. What's your sense of whether or not, because obviously they, they need to get this package through before McCarthy takes over in the House, even though McCarthy himself, uh, his position is not secure. McCarthy, of course, has, has said earlier that he won't give a blank check to Ukraine. So let's talk about the politics of it for a moment. Emily, what's your sense of whether or not this $45 billion, uh, for Ukraine will get through with the National Defense Authorization Act? Yeah, I... I think this is something we're all we're all hopeful will will go through um, because obviously once the new session of Congress starts, aid for Ukraine is less secure. Um, on the one hand, you know the the Republicans who are in the House who are strongly against Ukraine are are not a, a majority um, in the House by any means, and and we've also seen that the U.S. Senate, even Republicans, um, Republicans have actually been some of the most proactive voices in getting aid to Ukraine, including military aid. So there's a real disconnect there between the the House representatives who are not supportive of Ukraine and other um, Republicans in Congress who are supportive of Ukraine. Um, so I mean, I I. I hope that there will be some way to get this passed because the implications of this NDAA not being passed, you know, it has implications outside of just what's what the aid for Ukraine means. Um, so I, I really hope that that the representatives will, you know, find some way to agree on it. Um, I am a little fearful that that aid for Ukraine will start to um you know, it just won't be as forthcoming um, once the Republicans take over the House. There's a real there's a real question about how much power they will actually have to shift U.S. policy on Ukraine once they have control of the House. Um, like I said, they're really not a majority, but they the voices that are there are really loud. I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene has just gone on record over and over and over again criticizing Ukraine. Um, you know, I, I, I hope that that's marginal and I hope that that once people get into their seats, they'll understand the gravity of what's happening. And, you know, maybe they'll be privy to some further information that will help them change their stances. Um, but it, it's really important for this NDAA to be passed now before that that next session um, takes takes office. So, so far, the Biden administration has managed to get U.S. military assistance to Ukraine to the amount of about $22 billion. Now, of course, this $45 billion tranche is being voted on at the moment. But if the rest of European countries, then the next one in terms of providing equipment to Ukraine is the United Kingdom. They've committed about $3.29 billion in weapons and military financing. Germany, $2.4 billion. Poland, $1.9 billion. So it kind of pales besides the amount the United States is providing. Is there any indication that the Germans have always been pretty slow and I don't know what's going on with them? What's your sense of whether or not the Europeans could step up since the United States is stepping up? Well, the Europeans certainly could step up. I, I do think it's a question of whether or not they they will at this point. Um, I, I keep sort of hoping that as the U.S., you know, shows the kind of continued support other, especially Germany, um, but other European allies will follow suit. I, I think they're they're largely framing this around this poorly articulated fear of escalation, right? This idea that if Germany gives too many 
um, too many weapon systems, then, you know, Putin will escalate in return. And obviously we've seen that escalation is, you know, um, only a choice of, of, of Russia and Putin and, and escalation and attacks on energy infrastructure all come, you know, just, just because, right, they're not necessarily in response to aid. Um, and further weapon systems and, and further military aid. So I feel a little that that Germany is sort of using this this escalation fear as a cover to not give more substantial support. And we know that a lot of you know top officials in Germany have had long relationships with Russia, and and that probably colors a lot of their decision making. Um, obviously, we've still seen excellent support from from the Baltics, from from Central European countries as well. But their capacity is not the same as Germany's, for example, um, and and the UK, and and so I think it really is up to those larger powers to step up and show Europe what you know what more can be done to make sure that Ukraine wins, and and of course this, the more that they give and more quickly, the sooner Ukraine gets the victory, and then you know the questions of rebuilding the country, you know both both infrastructurally, politically, economically, all of those questions can start to be addressed, which I, I understand is something you know, that European institutions and European government governments want to focus on, but uh, of course have to be pushed a little further away as the war still rages on. So Emily, just in closing then, we're talking about Germany and we know about the social, the social Democrats have always had close ties to Russia, particularly Schroeder, who's pretty much on Putin's payroll. Interestingly, there was an article in um, yesterday's Washington Post about who blew up the Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2 pipelines, and it was always assumed um, that it was the Russians, but Mm -hmm. they were now suggesting that there's some investigations going on that indicate maybe somebody else did it. Do you have any ideas of who somebody else might have been? I mean, mean, the only country that has the capability, I imagine, is Poland. And what's your sense of what happened there? Do you have any any insight into it? You know, not, not really. I... I would. I, I'm glad that there's some kind of investigation. I think this is worth trying to find a, you know, a, a real answer for, if that's possible. I mean, I think, you know, the idea that um, the security around this pipeline was able to be breached uh, that that doesn't seem especially likely to me. Which, you know, of course, to me, you know, logically speaking, it it, it seems like Russia is the only <laughs> Russians are the only people who would have had access to it to do that sort of thing. But then again, all this intelligence, you know, around pipelines and, and everything, who who really knows? Um, and certainly there are a lot of people who have interests in that pipeline not continuing. So um, I'll be curious to follow this investigation. I, you know, to be completely honest with you, I worry that it's a bit of a distraction from the things that really matter, which are about helping, helping Ukraine win. Um, and, you know, the pipeline is now dead, so therefore we can uh, find some other energy infrastructure to talk about. I mean, Russia is damaging all of Ukraine's energy infrastructure as much as it can to create a humanitarian crisis this winter, which is ultimately, um, you know, something that concerns me and, and should concern Europe a lot more than, than the pipeline. Sure. Just in closing, what's happening, though, on the front, particularly in Bakhmut, is so horrendous, I'm told, from other sources that are there on the ground, that Putin is now mobilizing people right across Russia, you know, young and old, they're just throwing them in. And apparently they're throwing these poorly trained recruits into battle in wave attacks where they just get mowed down. And if they try to run and escape, behind them is Hadirovs, the Chechen warlords, you know, killers. They're just absolutely psycho, these Chechens. And apparently they're machine gunning the young Russians or, or as they try to escape. So this is a horrendous situation. I mean, uh, you know, apparently it happened at the Battle of Stalingrad as well. But how much longer do you think the Russians can keep this up? Because surely the word must get out back home that there's this slaughter going on. Clearly Putin doesn't care about how many Russians die. But uh, I would think that the Russian people eventually would care. I would I would hope so. I mean, I've heard um, that 
I've heard recently that there will be another call up of, of around 500,000 Russian troops from across the country. And as we know, in the first wave of mobilization, it was it was largely focused on on the far east and, and the central part of the country. So, you know, non-ethnically Slavic populations, more rural populations, not this mobilization. The first one was not focused in the cities. So it wasn't, you know, the 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 Russians who have the most connections with Europe, that sort of thing. Uh, another 500,000 people is going to start affecting those urban populations, those those people who so far have found it in themselves to stay in Russia, to support Putin. Um, and eventually, you know, the number of soldiers who who have been killed, Ukraine claims that 100,000 Russian soldiers have been killed, which is which is more than, you know, any modern war that Russia has experienced. Um, you would think that eventually, you know, families of those soldiers are not going to be able to support this war anymore. I don't know what the turning point is. I mean, I thought the turning point would have been the discovery of of murders of civilians across Ukraine over and over again. Um, um, but that clearly wasn't the case. So it's it's very hard to say what the turning point inside Russia will be. But but it seems to me that these poorly trained, poorly equipped soldiers who are who are basically being used as cannon fodder, um, you know, it, that's just un, untenable at a certain point, but I, we, we keep being wrong about, about what people will, will withstand and accept as part of the, the struggle to win this war. So um, I'm not totally optimistic that things will change, but I, I hope that, that they will. Well, Emily Channel Justice, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks so much for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Emily Channel Justice, who's the director of the Tiberi Contemporary Ukraine Program at the Ukraine Research Institute at Harvard University a sociocultural anthropologist who's been doing research in Ukraine since 2012. Her current research focuses on political activism and social movements among students and feminists during the 2013-2014 Euromaidan mobilizations. And her latest book is Without the State, Self-Organization and Political Activism in Ukraine. We're going to take a brief station break. we back with an update on the public release of the January 6th Committee's much-anticipated report. Senior. Can you tell me where we're heading? Lincoln County Road or Armageddon? Seem like I've been down this way before. Is there any truth in that, senor? Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Jennifer Taub, a legal scholar and professor of law at Western New England School of Law, who previously taught at Harvard Law School. Her writing focuses on corporate governance, banking and financial market regulations, white-collar crime and corruption. She has testified as a banking law expert before Congress, and her latest book is Big Dirty Money, Making White-Collar Criminals Pay, now out in paperback. And she's the host of the new podcast, Booked Up with Jen Taub. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jennifer Taub. So great to be here, Ian. Well, thanks, Jennifer, and I'm I'm glad you're not totally booked up. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, we wouldn't be doing this. And happy holidays to you and to our listeners as well. So I'm always astounded that when the insurrection happened and you had people like Senate Majority Leader then Mitch McConnell absolutely excoriating Trump, and telling the Democrats, you can put this guy in jail. I mean, I'm paraphrasing what he said, but he uh-huh. was really pretty straightforward. And even Kevin McCarthy spoke with outrage at what Trump had done. Why then couldn't they have done something? I know they did an impeachment, but it seems like they didn't strike when the iron is hot, when this absolute horrible crime was exposed and the criminal behind it was clearly culpable. What happened or what didn't happen? By they, are you talking about the Republicans in the Senate? Well, they obviously voted against impeachment. <laughs> I just wondered whether there was another mechanism that could have worked when the momentum of outrage was not exploited and it dissipated and then Trump turned around and made it all seem like nothing had happened. And half the country believes that nothing had happened. Yeah, I think you know, a couple of things happened uh, First of all, the, the they had their chance. Uh, you know, Mitch McConnell should have whipped those votes to get the um, conviction for the impeachment, and then 
All you need is a simple majority for the second vote in the Senate to bar him from office. But he didn't do it. Um, and I think he put his finger to the wind and he could tell the direction it was blowing. And Trump was still quite popular at the time. Sure, if, you know, a few days after um, the insurrection on January 6th and maybe even into early February, but they didn't actually have the impeachment proceedings until, if I recall correctly, into February. Um, and by then, they didn't, you know, they didn't want to rock the boat. I think that they knew that Trump was, again, still popular with the base and didn't want to lose primaries. I think they just hoped that they could somehow, um, you know, kind of talk out of both sides of their mouth, you know, not not alienate Trump supporters, but have non-Trump candidates win in the primaries. And then somehow they thought they might prevail in the general. But, you know, those Trumpers candidates won in some areas. And, and that's kind of why the Democrats held on to the Senate. But that's that's, that's just the Republican side. I think on the um, from the, the 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 sort of administration of justice, Mitch McConnell also did something um, there too. He used his power to slow down appointments. So we on the Democrat side did not get an attorney general in place until March. I don't think you know. I don't think Merrick Garland was the right choice for attorney general. I thought I, I you know there were times when I thought he was doing something good. And that was when they began to announce a crackdown on white collar crime in the, the uh, fall of 2021. But it, and when in the summer and August of 2022, when they they when he apparently must have known about and authorized the search of Mar-a-Lago for for the documents um, that Trump was hoarding there. But until then and now even now, I see him as not the right guy for the job. But even so, without an attorney general in place, there could be no criminal action taken no one no real investigation of of what of what trump did so you know you wait um and the moment is lost right well here we are now almost two years later finally getting the public release of the january 6th committee's much anticipated report there's been some stuff come out i guess most of it will be out what on friday i believe but what did you make of what's been released so far, which is basically the those that stonewalled the investigators by pleading the Fifth Amendment? Well, one would expect um, a person to plead the Fifth if they think they're in legal jeopardy. What I'm you know, most impressed with is all the charges, not unexpected, all the referrals, I would say, um, for Trump and some others. These are really very powerful statutes. And I think given the evidence presented, charges under all, or at least some of these would hold up an appeal. And you, and you might remember, they include um, uh, conspiracy to defraud the United States, states, which does not mean fraud in the sense of monetary fraud, but it means to um, interfere with or try to defeat a lawful function of government. So that would be our election system. There's also incitement to insurrection was is one of the recommendations. Another one is obstruction of a congressional proceeding. Um, and the final one involves making a false statement. Um, and, you know, again, these are our are, are statutes, especially the false statement statute, especially the obstruction statute um, and the conspiracy statute. Those are common statutes used in white collar crime. There is a lot of um, a lot of reasons to believe that that I think charges under those would 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 stand up. Well, I hope that they go after they use that statute making false statements to go after all of those Republicans in the states who came up with these. They forged, they manufactured fake electors, exactly. and they sent them to the National Archives, and that moron that got reelected. That senator in in Wisconsin actually tried to get the the fake documents to Pence. So I mean, it's an amazing story what happened. And, and you're thinking about Ron Johnson, that senator. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to mention his name. Because oh, I'm sorry. That's okay. <laughs> you go ahead. <laughs> you know, I, I I look at what we've seen 
And, uh, you know, I, I definitely want to want to see see the whole document. But, you know, they the, the, the committee is done with their work. They're going to be dismantled because the Republicans are not going to continue this or at least one in this form. Um, and now they've handed over with a bow, a giant document, lots of interviews and l- lots of legal analysis to the Department of Justice. And some you know, some would say, well, the DOJ doesn't really need that. Can't they do their own work? But I think it's pretty interesting. We saw an uh, interview with the chairman of the committee, Benny Thompson. I don't know if you saw this with Simone Sanders last night. And uh, the, on this interview, he was, you know, she asked him, well, are you confident now with the Department of Justice what they might do with this? And he said, I am now uh, that there's a special counsel, which I thought was quite interesting. Um, not exactly uh, a vote of confidence in Merrick Garland himself, but hopefully in Jack Smith that he has what he needs. He's got the, the you know, the deposition transcripts. He's got all the notes, all of, you know, wh- whatever, whatever that the DOJ may not have had before. Now this special counsel has in hand and I think, you know, they apparently, you know, we were told that appointing the special counsel would not delay things. And apparently he's using some of the same, if not all the team members that Mer- that the, the folks had at the Department of Justice. So they've been following along these hearings. This should there should be no delays. I, I, I hope and expect that we will see an indictment of some sort before March. I don't know if it will relate to this January 6th committee report or it will relate uh, to the documents that the documents that Donald Trump was keeping in Mar-a-Lago and elsewhere that he should not have been, uh, you know, whatever it is, um, it's time finally that our government shows that nobody is above the law, not even a former president. Well, just to touch on the documents, Mar-a-Lago, the theft of highly classified documents, I don't see how the Department of Justice can avoid indicting and prosecuting Trump on that charge, because how are they ever going to charge anybody else further down the chain, as they have often done with, you know, rogue CIA agents, and they've also gone after legitimate whistleblowers and journalists for receiving classified documents. So if they want to uphold the law, they have to go after the biggest lawbreaker in history. One one would think that. I mean, you have examples of people like Reality Winner and others who for so much less were almost immediately apprehended, um, you know, indicted, imprisoned and served time. And yet this guy can kind of just sit, you know, sit around at his golf club, um, you know, and rail on his social media website about how unfair things are and still continually withhold documents and, and doesn't seem to face the same consequences now yet. Um, but it's not, you know, sure, you and I would think they've got him dead to rights, but you know the history in our country over the years of enforcement against the most powerful, you know, waxes and wanes, and there are people who just get away with it because there's just too much efforts, too costly. They're they're too powerful, and no and no one bothers. I don't think he's going to get away with it this time. I think his star has fallen. And his power is, you know, on the decline. And I don't think the government's afraid of him anymore. So what do you expect then? You were saying earlier, Jennifer Taub, that nothing's much going to happen till March. Oh, no, at the latest March. I think I think January or February is all. I'm, I'm, I'm putting the outside date that, uh-huh. uh, you know, by the end of February, the latest, that there will be the grand jury will indict. The real question is, you know, someone, someone brought up this issue about, you know, you know, where the, what the venue would be and, you know, which case might go first. I mean, some folks think that, you know, the facts are easier um, to prove uh, uh, with the, with the documents in terms of the, you know, espionage charges, as well as the obstruction of the grand jury, as well as, you know, the document destruction and, and so on. That's another kind of obstruction type charge. Some people think those are kind of easier to prove with the Mar-a-Lago case. However, it may end up being that this case involving January 6th goes forward first because it's more likely to be before a jury maybe in D.C. versus one in Florida for the other case. You know, that's well above my pay grade 
determining when, where and when that will happen. But again, if we're going to see justice, it should, it should come before March. And the same thing should have been true with the Mueller report. There was a clear blueprint, uh, not just for an impeachment, but also with volume two of the Mueller report talks about the obstruction that uh, Donald Trump engaged in, um, including, you know, firing Comey, including interfering with the special counsel investigation into the ties he had with Russia. And there's so much in that volume two of the report that should have led to indictments and didn't because, you know, Bill Barr wasn't going to do it or his successor who was there busy trying to, God knows what he was doing. I don't want to make accusations here, but I think we know what they were up to trying to appease Trump as he was trying to fight the peaceful transition of power. But as soon as there was a Biden appointee in, and certainly as soon as Merrick Garland was in, he should have pursued that, and he didn't. So in my mind, you know, we will either see charges in the first two months, you know, under these cases that are really straightforward, or, you know, we should kind of give up hope. So just in the last minute, then, Jennifer Taub, when do you think we'll see Trump in an orange jumpsuit? Because look what just happened with Steve Bannon. He's been convicted, but he's still out. Yeah, I I don't think you're going to see. I've always said that I think Trump will be indicted and I think he'll be convicted, but I think he will not be in a a normal prison situation. Right. You know, you can't have the Secret Service locked up uh, along with, (laughs) you know, that doesn't work. I think that there'll be some sort of house arrest type situation. Right. But why why is Bannon out there doing his Breitbart thing if he's already been convicted? Uh, There seems to be a double standard. There's a lot of... African-American men in, in jail without bail, you know. Well, so I thought he had been um, convicted on on the contempt charge. Right. I'm sorry, he's on it. He's appealing it. That's what it is. Okay. So yes, he was sentenced. But even so, once he's he's out, of, you know, and, and because he's not considered a flight risk, so he will be out of jail pending. Similar to um, Sam Bankman Freed, who is apparently not considered a flight risk um, and is out on like $250 million bond, which only meant that his parents have to put up their house as collateral in case he skips town. <laughs> Do you see something in common about any of these people, Ian? It's um, good to be white, male, and wealthy. I mean, that's just go. the way it is. I thank you for joining us. And again, <laughs> happy holidays to you. Happy holidays and festivus, because I've been airing my grievances. <laughs> Okay. And again, I've been speaking with Jennifer Taub, who's a legal scholar and professor of law at Western New England School of Law, who previously taught at Harvard Law School. Her writing focuses on corporate governance, banking and financial market regulation, white-collar crime and corruption, and she's testified as a banking law expert before Congress, and her latest book is Big Dirty Money, Making White-Collar Criminals Pay, Now I Didn't Paperback, and she's the host of the new podcast, Booked Up with Jen Taub. We can take a brief station break and back look into the 50-year-long radicalization of the Republican Party and the need to defeat it overwhelmingly, which the top-down leadership of the Democratic parties appears neither to comprehend what they're up against or have a plan to create a massive grassroots movement to defeat GOP extremism. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Lisa Graves, the Executive Director of the new corporate watchdog group, True North Research. She has served as a senior advisor in all three branches of the federal government, as Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Justice Department, as Chief Counsel for Nominations on the Senate Judiciary Committee, and as a Deputy Chief of the Article Three Judges Division for the U.S. Courts. Welcome to Background Briefing, Lisa Graves. Thank you, Ian. Thanks so much for inviting me on. Well, thanks for joining us. And your state of Wisconsin was a key swing state in the last midterm election and the most beatable candidate in the U.S. Senate, even though Trump's candidates like Oz, J.D. Vance, 
and um, Herschel Walker were in unbelievably flawed. Ron Johnson was just a gift to the Democrats, a complete disgrace. And he also is an insurrectionist. He tried to bring the fake electors slates to help in the January 6th insurrection. And yet the Democrats in Wisconsin blew it with a very flawed candidate who didn't seem to have his heart in the race from day one. And God knows why they chose him, except that I believe he was the choice of the progressives in the state, you know, kind of feel-good candidate. And they chose him at the expense of candidates who could have beaten Ron Johnson. So I bring it up as a, as a kind of example of what, what seems to be needed with the Democratic Party in facing the 50-year-long radicalization of the Republican Party, which they have to defeat overwhelmingly before we have American fascism. And I don't get the impression that the top-down leadership in the Democratic Party, not to mention you know, the people that work the campaigns, have an idea of what they're up against here with the GOP, and they don't seem to have any plans to create a massive grassroots movement needed to defeat GOP extremism. Well, I appreciate that uh, intro, Ian. And I think, uh, as you mentioned to me before, Thomas Frank's article or op-ed in the in the Times is really illuminating in terms of this, uh, this issue of a lack of imagination, uh, the need to have you know, really strong grassroots movements, not squashed by by a party, but, you know, really embraced. And I, I think that when I look at, you know, the landscape, it seemed like in Minnesota, for example, there was just a tremendous amount of success in, in the sense of um, both uh, articulating a really positive progressive message and fighting back hard on the extremists that were running. And let me just uh, speak about it in my personal capacity uh, not on behalf of my organization. Um, in Wisconsin, you know, that race is the closest race, um, Senate race in 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 history uh, as a percentage. Um, it, so it was a it was a narrow loss, but as you point out, uh, it seemed like a very winnable seat because Ron Johnson is so deeply flawed, was so embroiled in the insurrection, has made so many outlandish statements about privatizing Social Security, his um, just ridiculous claims about climate. Um, and, and, you know, his, his trafficking and conspiracy theories and more. Um, and in Wisconsin, you, you saw a situation where uh, Mandela Barnes, who was, the, who was then the lieutenant governor of the state and still is, I guess, until the swearing in of the new lieutenant governor, um, lost by like 25,000 votes. Um, and that's and it's been close in Wisconsin. It was, uh, it was close in Wisconsin in 2020 uh, for Biden beating, uh, beating Trump by about that margin. Um, but what we, when you look at the ballots, what you see is that there was, you know, not insignificant drop off from the number of people who voted Democratic for governor for Tony Evers uh, to retain him uh, and the number who voted for Mandela Barnes, his lieutenant governor, to become the Senate, the, the U.S. senator. Um, and, you know, I, I certainly uh, personally thought that um, the Johnson could have been hit harder and legitimately so. Uh, based on his extremism and the ads, um, you know, for uh, for Barnes were very positive, uh, sort of feel good types of ads. And as you point out, I think you pointed out before, um, you know, he does um, have real ties to the progressives in the state. And yet, you know, you can look at that drop off from Evers um, to Barnes and, you know, wonder about, you know, racism playing a factor. Um, uh, you know, Wisconsin has never had a black senator. Wisconsin is a predominantly white state. Its demographics are different from uh, Georgia's, for example, in terms of the, the, the size of the black population in, in our state here. And um, I have to believe that that was certainly part of the factor. One of the factors um, at play, unfortunately, um, with Republicans voting in lockstep with Johnson, no matter how, what he did, and some drop off. There's always a little bit of drop off down ballot from the very first race on the ticket. But, you know, I think that was significant. And also, um, you know, Mandela Barnes, who I don't know, and I've, I've heard many good things about, he's, he's um, you know, 36 years old. Um, the minimum age to be a senator is 30. Uh, the current average of age of senators in, uh, in Washington is in their mid-60s. Uh, there uh, is only one um, current senator who's younger than Mandela Barnes, and that's 
the the sen the new the the senator from uh, Georgia, uh, who's 33. Um, most of the most of the senators who are who are even near that age are in their late 40s. And so you had a situation where the party ran a very young person who had served in the legislature for um, about a you know nearly a decade um, in the state legislature, uh, who was serving as lieutenant governor, and the and the campaign presented him in, I, I think, very soft tones. Um, whereas um, Johnson, I think, uh, personally, deserved a real shellacking for his extremism. And um, you know that was not uh, seemingly a key part of those ads. But that's my point, Lisa. Look, you've got Trump and the Republicans. They have this mantra. They keep talking about the radical left Democrats. Well, <laughs> Where are the radical left Democrats? I wish they were some radical left Democrats. I wish they ran the party. They just don't seem to exist. Yet radical right Republicans are taking over the Republican Party. And they certainly are taking over the House on January the 3rd. So why can't the Democrats at least refer to the Republicans as radical right Republicans, which they are? Well, there's no doubt that they are radical or reactionary, right? And and in some ways, you know, in, in looking at Barnes as a candidate, um, you know, he's someone who you know comes from uh, from from the you know real progressives in the state. And so on that front, you could see an argument uh, for um, the the support that led him to you know win the primary and be backed by donors in the state, you know, which are his progressive roots. So, but I, I think I think you know an ingredient to me is you know, how you present a progressive candidate, but also how you take on, and as you as you point out, Ian, how you take on an extremist um, and really describe as an extremist. Now, Johnson ran, Johnson or people supporting Johnson ran ads attacking Mandela Barnes as supposedly an extremist, even though he's not. And, you know, I, I, I personally wish that, you know, uh, 27,000 more uh, Wisconsinites had voted for Barnes and that the Senate was not still occupied in part by such an unfit person, in my personal view, um, Ron Johnson. But the, the larger point um, that that I think you've made and, and that Thomas Frank has made is, you know, we need to be talking boldly, boldly about what needs to change in America to help it have it work for for all Americans, for working Americans. We need to be um, setting out those bold policies and defending that, and we need to be, you know, assailing those who have such a narrow view, such a regressive view, like Johnson, who, who who's attacked, you know, mainstream ideas like Social Security, let alone push this far right. And so, you know, I, I always think it's it's a challenge to do Monday morning quarterbacking. Obviously, the Dem Party in the state, in, in my state, um, you know, worked hard uh, to try to, you know, win the slate in Wisconsin in 2022. They were more successful in, uh, in 2020. And, you know, it was certainly... A heartbreaking loss to have Johnson retained. I also think it, it is a challenge to face an incumbent versus, you know, the, the other sort of far right Trump Senate candidates who were challenging, um, who weren't incumbents themselves. There's certainly some power in that. But, you know, to lose that to lose that seat to Johnson by, you know, 20, 25,000 votes um, is is just a heartbreaker. And I'm sure that there are um, a lot of things, a lot of things that people probably think they should have done differently, including, you know, could a different candidate have performed better um, in in pockets of the state? You can see on the election maps that Evers, the governor, won Door County, won a couple counties on the west uh, on the west side of the state that you know didn't go for um, didn't go for Mandela Barnes. I don't know what the ads were there, what the GOTV was there. Somehow there was a disconnect between people who, who came out in those parts of the state uh, for the Democratic governor and helped keep him in power, and yet they didn't pull the lever for Barnes. Well, I guess, you know, he's a progressive, and we should have more progressive candidates, but they've got to be progressives who fight. I mean, you've got a model like Bernie Sanders, who doesn't suffer fools and says it plainly the way it is. And it's just a messaging problem, a, a kind of caution, a kind of constipated centrism that is just boring and is completely inadequate to face the challenges of a neo-fascist, radical right Republican Party. 
And, you know, you mentioned the article by Thomas Franks at the New York Times, The Deadly Lack of Imagination in the Democratic Party. He points out that liberalism has won before. In fact, it wasn't that long ago when Franklin Delano Roosevelt Democrats won five straight terms in the White House and controlled the House of Representatives with a few brief interruptions from 1931 to 1995. And one of the most alarming statistics that came out of this midterm, even though the Democrats did much better than expected and held off, at least they captured the Senate and narrowly lost the House, more, Dem- more Republicans voted in this midterm than Democrats did. So that the Republicans are not going to go away, even if Trump implodes and you end up with a, a really nasty little fascist like Ron DeSantis, the Republicans are going to show up in droves. Yeah, I mean, Ron DeSantis, despite the effort to peddle him as Trump light, is really Trump with a law degree. Um, And, uh, you know, someone who um, is probably more disciplined than Trump in terms of messaging, but just as extreme in all the ways that that matter and that hurt, in my view. That's my personal view. Um, And I I do think, like like you said and and Thomas Franks wrote about, um, you know, this was... Uh, in essence, both a win for the Democrats and a stalemate because um, so many Republicans came out despite the attempted coup, uh, the violent insurrection, despite the just manifold lies, uh, despite the, you know, um, a tremendous um, lack of um, integrity, uh, again, in my personal capacity to say of, of some of these Senate candidates like Dr. Oz, it's just really extraordinary that that any of these races were even close given um, given what we've seen, but we also saw the Republicans and their infrastructure put substantial money into um, trying to blame uh, President Biden for gas prices, even though he has, you know, really almost no control over them here or abroad. We've got, you know, the, the war, uh, Russia's war against Ukraine. We've got, you know, huge gouging by oil companies and oil execs. Um, the problem isn't the gas tax. The problem is just this um, greed that has taken hold of so much of um, of these, you know, of these corporations where they are paying themselves so well and jacking up prices to the expense of the rest of us. And yet somehow the Republicans are able to spin that as democratic policy when in fact what's happened is that the this this donor class, particularly the right wing donor class, has benefited so, uh, so much from the Trump tax cuts, which are really the Coke, uh, the Coke push tax cuts. Um, to to put more money into the hands of these billionaires, and then they spend it in politics to continue to su- try to secure their policy. So there are huge problems uh, facing our nation, including this continued uh, propaganda that is being fueled and amplified by Fox uh, and by these other right wing networks that continues to mislead people. But you're right, there is um, there is a, an enormous need to capture the public's imagination with policies that really matter for people's lives. I do think some of those were reflected in the Build Back Better uh, proposal from Biden, but key parts of that you know, did not succeed, did not go forward in part because of intransigence, lockstep intransigence by Republicans and then by uh, you know, the, the, the efforts of, of two, um, you know, uh, I guess now one former Dem and, and another wayward Dem in Joe Manchin. Um, and and it's just so frustrating to see such a clamoring for change, including, um, as Franks points out, and you and I have talked about before, how much people wanted real economic change in the aftermath of the Wall Street meltdown in 2008. And instead, what we got was, you know, Wall Street uh, working closely with the Treasury Department to save Wall Street, not Main Street. And so, you know, these sort of so-called neoliberalism policies of the Democratic Party that continue to cater to Wall Street rather than hold them accountable are a huge problem. But also a problem is the fact that talking about the fascism that's rising in the U.S. is not part of the, of the political discourse every single week. Biden's speech on that issue in Philadelphia was enormously important, but it should have come sooner and should come more often. Um, the January 6th committee's work is tremendously important, um, but the Re- Republicans are about to mothball it, and we don't know what's going to come next in terms of the uh, Democratic leadership keeping this issue on the minds of people about how close we've come to losing our democracy and how close we remain to losing our democracy and the rights and freedoms that it protects. Well, just in closing, Lisa Graves, um, I mentioned Bernie Sanders as a kind of model of a, of a fighting progressive uh, as opposed to a passive progressive. 
I should also mention John Fetterman, who who won in Pennsylvania, even though he had had a stroke. He's a perfect example of the kind of candidates I think the Democrats need. So the candidates are out there, just the party leadership and uh, this party strategists are just woefully inadequate and don't seem to understand what they're up against. And um, I hope somehow or other there's a wake-up call because it's going to require a massive grassroots movement to overwhelm the rise of American fascism. It, it, it really is going to require a tremendous grassroots movement. And when you look at that Senate slate that's up in 2024, what you see is a repeat of 2018, where almost all the Republican Senate seats are safe, basically. It's theoretically the most uh, the most at risk is Romney. That's how safe those uh, Republican seats are uh, in that uh, cycle in 2024. And so many Democrats are up for uh, election. There's going to be a huge amount of money spent to try to uh, to remove them from office, to continue these smears, to push these extremist uh, candidates into power. Um, and obviously the presidential is going to be significant. Um, I am hopeful that, um, and this is sort of definitely lemonade, um, that this terrible Supreme Court, which is on such a path of extremism, will help uh, somehow help have a rebound effect like it did with the Dobbs case in terms of how the decisions it's about to issue which are so are likely to be so extreme along the same uh, path that this faction that Trump and Leonard Leo uh, and Dark Money install in the court, um, that the path they're on to basically destroy a, a 20, 20th and 21st century precedents that protect people's rights. Um, and that, that couldn't help help people wake up more or more people wake up to what's at, what's at stake and the need to be engaged for, our, you know, for the sake of our future. Um, but it's going to take a lot of work at the grassroots level. And I do think, you know, I do think people like Mandela Barnes who have, you know, deep progressive roots are key uh, to that effort. Um, and it's also a question of, um, you know, like you said, Ian, um, how, how, how hard are we pushing back on those, on those opponents who are so extreme? How willing are we to speak um, the truth in every uh, in every form about how extreme those individuals are and the and the agenda that they represent, what that means for ourselves and for our future. So, I'm with you on a straight talk. I've always been a fan of Bernie's and his straight talk. I think we need more of that kind of straight talk about our economy and and uh, so many other issues um, at all levels um, of um, of policymaking. And so, you know, I'm worried, uh, but I'm hopeful. Well, Lisa Graves, I thank you so much for joining us here today. And happy holidays to you, Lisa. And happy holidays and happy new year to you also, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Lisa Graves as executive director of the new corporate watchdog group, True North Research. She has served as a senior advisor in all three branches of the federal government, as deputy assistant attorney general in the Justice Department, as chief counsel for nominations on the Senate Judiciary Committee, and as a deputy chief of the Article Three Judges Division for the U.S. Courts. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now.
One more light goes out in 